1: Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers. Jean Batten Drive, Mount Maunganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old airplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Our kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, And a great cafe with excellent coffee if you'd like to be involved with classic flyers we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets currently at the moment we've got a grumman avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place, and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com
0: The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Flight DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota, and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Flight DC-3. Go to www.flightdc3.co.nz.
2: Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. I'm at Motat right now, sitting in the 747... 200 simulator uh, with Captain Neville Hay and Flight Engineer Peter Allen. Hello chaps.
3: Good afternoon. Hello David.
2: Now um, we're going to talk about your interesting and long careers in uh, Air New Zealand uh, at large and um, I'd just like to start with uh, Neville. Can you tell me how did you come to aviation in the beginning?
4: Uh, Well, basically uh, I was going to be a farmer all my life and uh, in the school holidays in uh, 1957, pretty cold winter's day and a cow uh, favoured me with the contents of a stomach uh, all over my head and I didn't fancy that too much so (laughs) um, a couple of weeks later an uncle came to see me uh, or see the family and uh, said that they were looking for apprentices uh, with teal and really that's where the story started. I applied uh, to become an apprentice with Teal and started there in uh, January 57 and I, sh- I was wrong in saying it was 57, it was 56 when, yeah. uh, when that uh, happened uh, with the in the cowshed uh, and, and I came through the apprenticeship system then uh, transferred uh, to flight engineer and could see that uh, track coming to an end uh, with the way the aviation was going and then finished off uh, a pilot's license which I'd started uh, with the Auckland Aero Club in 1957 and uh, transferred from there to uh, pilot DC-3, seconded to Fiji Airways and then back onto an Electra uh, as a first officer and then eventually getting a command and and working through the Air New Zealand system as it was then. uh, taking up management positions down the track, and it was just a different career, and so the, I think the the DC-8 was the aircraft I probably had more affinity with and, and at that uh, early period as I operated in that aircraft in every capacity including a navigator, so it was uh, a bit different uh, way to come through into aviation, but right. that's the way I did it. Okay.
2: And, and how did you come to aviation Peter?
3: Well I, uh, like Nev, uh, started as an engineering apprentice and that was in 1959 so I was two years behind Nev but worked generally in the same area. Nev was in the electrical section and I was in the instrument section. Um, When I was uh, offered that uh, apprenticeship in instruments I really didn't know what it was about and uh, I uh, on checking I found that the reason that they put me in there is that I'd been I'd attended Auckland Grammar School and didn't have any technical subjects so I uh, I started there and uh, it was uh, very fortunate because that was the year that uh, the company obtained the Lockheed Electra at, at the end of the year and there was huge development and changes from the equipment that uh, was being overhauled at, at Mechanics Bay, uh, a lot of, uh, because we service the Air Force Sunderlands there still, and uh, the uh, DC-6s, um, with the arrival of the Electra then went to from 28 volt systems to 112 uh, volt 400 cycle and uh, it was just huge changes so I was very fortunate to be there as all that development uh, progressed so I completed my apprenticeship at at the End of 19, uh, sorry, 1963, and was very fortunate that uh, right about that time they required more flight engineers. Flight engineers were always taken from the workshops at that time. Okay, and um, so I applied and. uh, was one of three who uh, were uh, given the flooding's near opportunities. And uh, that was, I'd been out of my apprenticeship two weeks. Okay. And uh, was told on December 23rd, so that was a very good Christmas present uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to receive. <laughs> um, we, uh, so. We started on the Electra course in, beginning in January of uh, 1964, and I, uh, on checking out, uh, qualifying on the Electra, uh, enjoyed the introductions of company routes as they were then, mainly across the Tasman, and. Uh, and up to Fiji and Pangapango, we used to go into. Uh, The um, DC-8s were coming and there was significant expansion, so uh, did the DC-8 course in uh, 1965 and uh, I wasn't moving onto the airplane till later in the in the year, but uh, because of all the training we were doing, I was made a, a training flight engineer and uh, uh, spent a number of months uh, then doing training of the people coming onto the airplane as an instructor. It, yeah, it was a training. I was, it was route training. Yep. that I was doing and. Uh, so then moved on to the DC-8. Uh, end of uh, checked out at the end of 1965. And the company then, at the beginning of end of 65, beginning of uh, 1966, expanded up to Honolulu and Los Angeles. And then uh, were commencing in March of 1966, operating into. Hong Kong and that was Kai Tak was the airport and uh, because we were new to jets and Kai Tak was obviously a pretty difficult uh, airport to land at and and operate through in and out of uh, Civil Aviation wanted the same crews to be operating there so uh, the company decided to put uh, two crews into Hong Kong to operate out of Hong Kong down to Sydney and back and uh, four pilots were based in Sydney and they used to have a flight engineer and navigator come through from Auckland and operate with them to Hong Kong and back. So we spent uh, 15 months uh, operating uh in and out of uh, Hong Kong with uh, some pretty significant uh things happening there, we arrived uh, in there one uh, one night and there were severe storms around uh, we were able to uh, land there it was It was pretty touch and go because we used to uh, descend down over over some of the islands and go up the uh, top of the harbour and round to the checkerboard and and land and uh, it was marginal but we uh, were able to land and that night the uh, the rainfall uh, there was eight inches in one hour and 13 inches in 24 hours.
2: Holy smokes! Well,
3: <laughs> it it took down part of the peak tram rail. It it, it took down roads and and uh, we were uh, uh, my flatmate and I. He was a navigator. But, uh, we were living in Repulse Bay and. Uh, So we did get home okay, but uh, we were stuck in there for several days. And other crew members who uh, lived up the peak, they were. In fact, one of them was stuck up there for two weeks. I did his two next. The other flight engineer, I did his two next uh, trips uh, because he was still stuck up there.
2: So, uh, if you hadn't been able to get down on that occasion, what was your alternative? Did you have Uh, uh,
3: Taipei was an was an ultimate, uh, but um, we couldn't always use that. There was the the old Taipei, and because the people had to be qualified to to uh, have to have particular qualifications to to go there, okay. uh, and uh, otherwise we'd go back to Manila, okay. and. Um, because at the start of that operation for the first six months we were going Sydney, Darwin, Hong Kong and southbound we were going Hong Kong, Manila, Sydney. Okay. Manila was a refueling stop southbound. Yep. It, um, then later on we went uh, Sydney, Hong Kong direct because the um, at that time the, the main runway now 1634 was the short runway and uh, they extended that and we were able to then get direct non-stop to, uh, to Hong Kong. Southbound at that time we then changed to go Hong Kong, Brisbane, Sydney because we could take passengers Hong Kong, Brisbane and Hong Kong, Sydney and then, uh, well, then through to Auckland. Okay. And, uh, but uh, doing Hong Kong-Brisbane non-stop became very difficult because the Vietnam War was hotting up, the Americans put a cap across the South China Sea of 21,000 feet and we couldn't get above 21,000 feet <laughs> until we got to the, and the Philippines. Yeah. And it, being at that altitude to start with we had no show of getting to Brisbane. So. We used to have to go Hong Kong, Manila, refuel, Manila, Brisbane, and down to Sydney. So, uh, so, so can, can, quite I, can I just times. ask?
2: You're talking about Hong Kong Kai Tak. Um, mm. You know, these days younger people might not even know about that airport because it's not used anymore. Mm. But you often used to see footage of aircraft flying down below the rooftops, yes, past people's windows of, of high rises. Yes, in the 1960s, were those high rises all there then?
3: Ah uh, yes, yes, wow. yes, yes, they were. Not, so you were doing the same Probably so not as, as high, but you certainly flew in amongst them. And yeah. and the uh, the departure going towards the hills. That was uh, that was very interesting as well, because um, if you were in a, a climbing turn going round the buildings and. Uh, if you'd had an engine failure, it was um, you got pretty close. Yeah. I mean, the performance, all the performance data took that into account. Yes, but uh, yes, we—I was on the um, proving flight as well before we actually went up there on the posting, and so we did. Uh, all of the pilots uh, flew in and out of. Hong Kong and did it in both directions and we did a simulated engine, we did a engine failure at V1 and uh, the performance engineer was, Bill Dunn was on board and he he calculated the performance very carefully before each g- one of these. And he, he said he did put on a buffer so we did clear the the uh, the obstacle by 104 feet but there was, there was quite a significant amount of wing out there as well <laughs> yeah. at a lower <laughs> position. <laughs> so yes, Hong Kong was, it was a very interesting operation, certainly at the beginning, yeah. yes. Yeah.
2: Were, were you, um, did you ever fly into Hong Kong at all, Yes,
4: yes I used to fly into Hong Kong, I had my command when I was flying into Hong Kong as well and you usually got a good landing off that checkerboard approach. Uh, because you're concentrating pretty hard to, yeah, okay. to achieve that. The only time that it, it became more problematic, I suppose, would be if you had a, a quartering sort of slight tailwind on the approach where you came round and it drifted you across the runway. But no, you. Were, I, I can never remember having a problem getting in there like uh, the weather that Pete had. No, like yeah. yeah, Didn't didn't fly in <laughs> cyclones.
3: <Yeah. laughs> well, another interesting in DC eight. Um, landing on one tree. There was an al- alternative where you'd fly on the operation through the line, uh, th- the, on the ILS, uh, through the moon gap and then do a harbour circuit. So you you broke off at 1,500 feet That's left, right. yep. went, went round the, the foreshore of Hong Kong Island and uh, in behind Stonecutter's Island and towards the checkerboard and that was uh, a very interesting approach, and that was the reason that uh, flashing billboards weren't allowed in Hong Kong at that time. Right. Because uh, it was a distraction. Okay. You yeah. do see flashing lights there now because harbour circuits aren't done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yes, that, that was a, a very interesting experience, the, the Hong Kong base. So, as things proceeded, we uh, we got the DC-10, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the first one was 1973. I went on to it uh, at the end of 1973. Uh, I, be, after a year or so, I was uh, appointed an instructor on it, and, uh, and then in. 1975. I was uh, appointed um, flight engineer, superintendent technical, and so went into the office and started working there, as well as flying and and uh, instructing in the simulator okay. and on on line and uh, so as and the other one of the other flight engineers that I started with, Don Olaf, he came into the office at the same time and he was uh, flight engineer superintendent training with Jim Robertson as the chief flight engineer and uh, Jim retired after a few years later and uh, don became the chief flight engineer and i was the deputy uh, then and uh, 10 years later uh, don retired and i became the chief flight engineer and was chief flight engineer uh, through to the from uh, 1989 through to the the end so' uh, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just go back to the uh, introduction of the Simple Seven Two Hundred because, as we know, uh, Erebus happened and uh, the DC-10 was uh, not only. For that reason, but other reasons as well, uh, considered um, to be not uh, suitable for what we were doing, and the decision was made to uh, purchase the 747 200. Uh, the time that uh, the company wanted to spending the preparation and introduction phase was very short Um, it it was probably about it was less than 18 months and and that's a a short period for the whole introduction but I was on that program we uh, had to uh, do the, the spec the airplane and uh, so people came down from Boeing and uh, it, it was a bit different from what it is now but essentially there are customer options and uh, because we would operated the DC-10 which was technically more advanced than this airplane, uh, we would we had the view that we would like to might keep some of those systems and if you just look at the simulator now the the vertical tape uh, engine instruments in the front that that uh, was what we had in the DC-10 and uh, it was de- decided that we wanted it on this airplane and uh, it took some convincing for. The number of people but we, we finally achieved that. Uh, there were other, other things we did like the engine ignition uh, setup. It, it was a, a Boeing option but previously you had two switches uh, for each engine here, here, here and here. And we just changed it. it. was a very simple system, and it, it uh, certainly was very good to operate. We uh, made some, a, a number of other particular items that, that we uh, wanted. It's, it's not here on this panel here, but. Flight Engineer's clock here because you did timing during the starts, and whereas the Boeing Standard was way back here. And uh, so, just a lot of things that we changed. Um, With the DC-10 we had had, or we specified the General Electric engine on, on the 747, on the DC10 we'd had some specific issues. We had got to understand those and had special procedures in place and under- understood it all and we were very satisfied that that engine would continue to um, be the right en- would be the right engine for us. Uh, we were, thrown a curveball when Rob Muldoon decided that to trade uh, aircraft engines for sheep and he said we would get the Rolls-Royce RB211 engine. This this really blindsided us and we we were coming from behind but um, we uh, and so it took a lot for us to really understand the what we're up against. Um, I did go to uh, an engine operators meeting before we uh, got the aeroplane and uh, that was uh, very helpful to understand some of the issues that were going on. Uh, uh, We had two crews Go across to Qantas and do the course over there. I was one of them, and uh, we we did the uh, full course at Qantas, and uh, including uh, flight training down at Avalon, and then we uh, did line training with them, and so we were. Line qualified uh, at Qantas, and then in the remaining five months or so before we got our aeroplanes, we used to go across and do one trip a month to, because we had to fly every 28 days, okay. had to keep maintain currency. Yep. And uh, so we'd go over to Sydney, Auckland, Sydney, and and come back, and uh, so. The, uh, the first aircraft we uh, got from Boeing was uh, May 1981 and uh, so we had we had some crews who trained over at Qantas. We had uh, other crews who trained at Boeing and they were, they completed their simulator training and were ready for at that time because we didn't have full flight simulators um, so I beg your pardon, zero flight time zero flight time um, full flight simulators uh, so pilots had to do at least three circuits before they t- to qualify Just, to understand the the feel and the and the view uh, and uh, so all of those pilots that were up at Boeing were probably I think six crews, six captains, six or eight, yes, and co-pilots and. They would do that um, that line training with Boeing over at Moses Lake that they used to use. It was a, a disused um, military base, and uh, and of course we had been over there on the acceptance phase. We we had done the acceptance flying, and uh, so we the first flight. Uh, I checked my logbook, 22nd of May, 1981, when we, uh, first flight in in the company uh, ownership, went across to Moses Lake, and uh, we, uh, I got off with other pilots and and crew, and went into a motel, and uh, the other, another lot did their circuits, Normally, was about uh, two to three hour detail. Uh, interesting at Moses Lake, the, the runway so long you can land on it, come to a full stop, and just take off again. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> we're fourteen thousand feet, fifteen, 15 yeah, something like that. And uh, so we're uh, on. Oh, and, and just getting back to that we uh sometime before Mount St Helen's had erupted yeah. and Moses Lake wasn't able to be used so it was covered in volcanic ash yeah. and so for some months Boeing were using a field in Montana and uh, they they were planning for us to go there but just the last, very shortly before we were able to use Moses Lake, so we were using Moses Lake. So I went out, uh, or our crew went out to do the second detail, and uh, I was was also getting my instructor uh, circuit training check out from the the Boeing uh, check, or instructor flight engineer who was with us. And uh, so we'd done most of the circuits, I know Spike, uh, Spike Jones who was the captain, he had gone down the back to, often on circuits one of the pilots who wasn't flying would go down and watch the flaps come out, and the, we used to say the aircraft's falling apart, coming apart, and, yeah. and, and watching it all happening. And we were going downwind and I was standing here behind Bill Melville, and I looked, and uh, the uh, number three hydraulic quantity was just going down. So, so I uh, tapped Bill on the shoulder, and he said, "Oh my gosh, yeah, number three hydraulic system failing." And we uh, got out the, the quick reference handbook, which is the non-normal checklist, and did all the right things, and we. They shut down the hydraulic system and uh, I knew that we didn't have any maintenance support at Moses Lake. So I said to the Boeing pilot, uh, we need to go back to Boeing Field. And uh, he uh, he disagreed and said we'll land, so we landed and uh, we uh, had the airplane stuck there with no maintenance support, <laughs> failed hydraulic system, yes. and uh, we, uh, the the Boeing instructor, all he was concerned about was getting a ride back to to uh, Boeing Field, and there was a Saudia aircraft in the circuit, and so he he arranged for us to get on that and go back to going field. But meantime we made, we got our paperwork complete, turned it out. Turned out that the failure was a the uh, the body gear, the main the body gear on the on the right side, the downlock cylinder, had split the whole the outside of the casing, and throwing the hydraulic system everywhere. As uh, a Boeing admin guy in the in the shed we were gathered up in came in and said, "Well, the difference between a man and a boy is the price of his toys." And you done gone and broke yours. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we uh, we got back. Uh, the, the Saudi uh, aeroplane came in, and uh, we. Well, h- how did you get on that aircraft? If well, you- the in the just behind the well, just back here yeah. it's an entrance to the electrical service center Yeah, and there's a ladder ah, that goes okay. down okay. and so they dropped the ladder down we climbed up there, <laughs> shoved <laughs> our bags up <laughs> and uh clam it up and they pulled the ladder up and we went back there and uh, that proved to be a pretty long day. We had, um, we had left the hotel and uh, where we were staying in, in Seattle uh, at about 7 o'clock in the morning. And because we went out to Everett Payne Field where the aeroplane was and took it across to Moses Lake, did all that, had this happen. Finally got back and I think I got back into the hotel at 11 o'clock that night. So. Yes. <laughs> and uh, So we lost a whole lot of training, of course, yeah. at that time and uh, we we then after they repaired it we went back up and did a, a flight an operational flight check and uh, the airplane was delivered uh, it was, of course VIPs on board they went through went uh, from uh, Seattle to Honolulu they overnight and went to Auckland i stayed on with um, uh, one of the flight engineers who didn't get to do the training, but he helped, and we did the acceptance of the second aeroplane, NZW, and uh, then uh, the uh, the delivery. Um, Lindsay Cordell had been on the delivery of the first one. He came back, and he uh, was captain, uh, and. We did the, uh, the acceptance flying, and uh, the delivery was the first non-stop. Just check my logbook; it was 15 hours 10 minutes. It, uh, <laughs> the the, the headwind, which normally disappears, st- dis- it stayed until about 10, 10 degrees south, and uh, so it was, a, it was a long flight. And. Uh, So and we had um, a lot of route training and and quali- to get people qualified because uh, the third airplane then arrived two weeks after the second one. Yeah, it, it was very close. All the three airplanes, and uh, so it was a very busy time. The whole the time to introduce the. The airplane.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh,
3: uh, and during that time,
2: you were still on the DC uh, ten.
4: Yes, you, yes, I was on the uh, I was on the DC eight um, at the time they were doing this, and they got rid of those. Uh, left was with one freighter, and I came across. I was the um, uh, chief pilot on the DC eight at that stage. Then I came across to the DC ten and was the chief on the, the chief on the DC ten. Uh, I stayed with the DC-10 uh, and got onto the 747-200 further on down the track. Right. So, well, I was
2: as a DC-10 pilot, were you looking forward to the 747?
4: or um Well, it, we, we always looked on the 747 as a, as a less electronic aircraft than the DC-10 was. It was a beautiful airplane, uh, electronically, and uh, uh, but yes, I was. It was, a, it, you know, it's a big airplane. It's a challenge for any pilot to fly, and uh, one that you always look for. Uh, they towards the end of that uh, DC-10 period, I was, <clears throat> was in charge of taking uh, two of the DC-10s down to Chile and uh, teaching, well we had the Chilean pilots over and put them through our simulator and trained them in the simulators and they, they were already flying the series uh, 10 DC-10s, where ours of course were the series 30, so they had a fair handle on uh, DC-10s, but uh, the uh, our aircraft was more slippery than the, the old Pan Am ones that they were flying, so they didn't take much training. But it was um, we used to fly up to uh, Paris and uh, Miami uh, with them and uh, check them on the way through. And uh, of course, at that time the Falklands War was uh, alive and well, and the Chileans were. Pretty happy with New Zealand uh, supporting uh, uh, the British uh, flying, uh, in, in, sorry, working in the Falklands. And uh, one day, coming out of um, Miami, uh, fog was forecast uh, down in Santiago, and the alternate uh, was Mendoza over in Argentina. And uh, with me, uh, with the Air New Zealand crew, was a uh, a ground engineer that we had with us uh, at the time and a flight engineer and uh, sure as hell if we had have gone into Mendoza uh, we would be in prison, nothing sure and uh, so uh, in the end the top of descent uh, or just prior to top of descent the place cleared and we didn't go there but it would have been a challenging time. Sure, yeah, imagine, yeah. And the, another interesting point at that time was that Chief Purse's wife was the agent in South America with Exocet missiles and she was selling Exocet missiles to the Argentinians so so it was an interesting time (laughs) (laughs) going back to uh, listening to Pete uh, I was actually flying as a flight engineer before I'd completed my apprenticeship Uh, so I was flying on the Electras as a a flight engineer and already had uh, private pilot's license by that stage. I think that's probably what helped me uh, get a position as a flight engineer. And the apprenticeship board was going to sue the company and uh, my parents uh, for not completion of contract so I had to go back and work in the hangar uh, on days off when I wasn't flying as, oh, a, oh, right. as an apprentice as, as working as an apprentice yet holding the rank of a flight engineer was a bit interesting. Yeah. So it, um, I'd have been on that aircraft, the Electra, as a flight engineer for three years I got promoted to a, a, a Czech flight engineer, well, a training flight engineer. Yeah. And of course, uh, I w- from there I went to the DC 8 as a flight engineer and a training flight engineer as well. Before I came back to the Electras, um, and that was a story in itself because I was, I was, due to, I was asked to go back onto the Electras because I was going to uh, resign and go to um, Safe Air. Fly because I had a commercial license with them and, and, and instrument rating at that stage. And the company offered me the position as a uh, first officer on the Electras, sorry, they offered me the position as a, the chief flight engineer on Electras uh, for a period so they could get the, the current flight engineer, chief flight engineer, and his assistant uh, up onto the DC 8. In the event while I was in the training school for this, the DC 8 crashed at Pi. Oh, yes. Sir. So that meant that the company was able with flight engineers, uh, and I ended up um, being seconded to Fiji Airways to fly that DC 3. Uh, uh, Foxtrot Alpha India, it was, and ex- it was New Zealand registration was uh, ZKCAW. Yep. That's the one on now on the pole down on by beside McDonald's. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was my first uh, experience. So I, I was up there, went up there with with 210 hours as a pilot. Uh, flew that for six months, then came back and uh, onto the right hand seat in Electra. So.
2: That actually must have been a really good training ground, though. It was.
4: Yeah, DC, yeah DC3, great airplane, lovely old airplane, and uh, it, it was good for me. But I had. Uh, just over three and a half thousand hours as a flight engineer, so was, it was uh, putting into practice what you'd seen other people sweating over. <laughs> <was> <laughs> <laughs> but, but having having done that, you know, the uh, com- and then ended up uh, onto the DC-10. My first command was back on the DC-8, so I was a, I was onto the DC-10 as a first officer, and came back for command in in uh, 1975. At age 35, and which is about the right time for me to command it, uh, I felt with my hours, and uh, yeah, so I had a command on DC 8, DC 10, and 747 from there.
2: So, with the progression of the DC 8, um, the DC 10, and then the 747, was it the same crew positions in each of those? Was it two pilots,
4: flight engineer, navigator? Was it all the same it, that Yeah, the, the navigators uh, finished uh, in the dc 8 era. Oh. Uh, and uh, I, I did my uh, uh, one flight as a navigator because uh, it was a requirement for command in those days to have a flight nav license. Oh. And uh, so I did my one flight, uh, achieved that, and it, that transpired. It was that in those days the flight nav had finished, but it was called a, comp- a company navigation certificate. It's equivalent. You did the same exams there with so, so I'd done that, and then I just you know sat and waited for a command, which came up in, um, I said 1975, so on the DC8, and then and I was uh, instructor on the DC8, and then the, the fleet manager of the DC8, and then transferred from there onto the DC10 as straight as fleet manager straight away, because the, as Peter s- has said, that that rapid transition uh, was going on. The 747-200 series. I eventually, after I got got the DC-10s out of the way, I, I moved into the seven, into that position, the, so as captain on the 747-200, and then picked up uh, uh, the position. I was deputy chief pilot for a while for the company under Spike Jones, and then uh, I went into the technical department. as as Deputy Chief Technical Captain. Captain Brian Horn was the technical manager at that stage, so I was deputy to him. And uh, in mid-84, the company was uh, interested in the 747-400, which was mooted, which was uh, the next stage of removing of the uh, flight engineer. Of the 747s and the aircraft going digital. By that stage, of course, we had the the 767 in operation, which was a two man cockpit. And Boeing uh, wanted, or Boeing had decided they were just going to put a 767 cockpit into the 747 400 and work from there. And they were asked the airlines um, to supply or to um, send. Representatives up from each airline who was interested in the in the aircraft uh, to help design this uh, 747-400 as as was designated. In fact, it wasn't. It was 747X at that time. They didn't know what they were going to call it. Um, and so I I went to Boeing from '84 through '87 uh, as part of the uh, cockpit design team, which was a, a challenging and interesting, very interesting time. Um, Back, just backing up a bit, but there's, there's a tale around that too, because back in the, the late 70s, or well, the mid 70s, of course, we had the oil shock, and the company was always looking for ways to uh, shorten our routes if we could, saving fuel was a basic requirement. I'd come across, as when I was uh, fleet manager of the DC 8, an ICAO paper uh, which Was talking about future air navigation systems, and I kept the the address of this paper. I knew exactly where it was in the company filing system, and I referred to it from around that time. It was decided that uh, ICAO was going to proceed with this future air navigation systems. So around the time we were sorting out the 747-400, that was going to be about the first aircraft that could. Operate under the future Air nav system electronic requirements. Uh, when we came to do the specification for the 400, I w- I, that was my job from the flight operations uh, side of it, was to uh, do the specifications as Pete had done on the 747 uh, 200. I d- did that for the 400, and one of the interesting things was that. The company was all, at that time we were short of money, and we were always short of money as a company, and if we didn't get a return on on investment in uh, 18 months, uh, you could not implement what you were thinking about. Peter has mentioned uh, that there are options of what you put on the aircraft, and future air navigation system required satellite communication, or sat nav, uh, satcom, on it. So there was an option to put a, a, a SATCOM a receiver mounting in the roof of the aircraft. and This had to be within six feet of the aerial uh, for, for operation. Uh, the, so I'd done all the specs and included this uh, uh, thing in it. And uh, the company, in their wisdom, cutting down the to the cutting back on what we'd already spec. Pete said he had a Rolls Royce issue over over GE. Um, we had. the the very broad Carpenters Pencil run across this thing and and a lot of things we'd expect uh, they they wouldn't uh, the the senior management decided we didn't need them the satellite um, SATCOM aerial which was going to be up there wasn't a big uh, money item and I could see that that was where the future was we needed that and it was going to be big money to do it afterwards so I had a talk with uh, the Boeing our Boeing uh, uh, salesman who was coming down and convinced Boeing uh, that that should become a, a basic in the aeroplane and we're only we're only talking about 1500 bucks you know it wasn't a big thing right uh, and it was put in and then subsequently uh, proved to be the right decision so that you know some things that we knew that we needed down the track weren't always able to get hold of one of the things that, that Pete mentioned, I don't know if you see it here on the panel, is, it, is a a tat probe indicator here. Mm. That's one of the things that they did as a uh, when they spec the aircraft. It was yeah. down the far end of yeah, the panel, the engineer, right. Mm. And the flight engineers could see it there. That's number two system. Uh, that, that's, that's the right system. That's yes. the left system. Um, so they're, they're independent. T- yeah. t- total air totally, totally, totally air temperature. That and the engines uh, use it as a sensor, but they have their Mostly their own, but it's the computations come from the total air temperature, airspeed, and all sorts of things. Okay. And the probes are just set off the nose down here. And we had a had a, a 74200 one night. Went into a situation that um, of slowing slowing airspeed, and uh, it it turned out uh, that when you're flying at maximum altitude for the weight of the aircraft. Uh, you're using just about the, the maximum amount of thrust you can to stay there uh, in cruise, and what what was happening, if if that temperature increased, the maximum amount of thrust you were allowed to use was indicated on in these tapes here, uh, would would drop down. So, in other words, the higher the temperature, the less thrust you could get. Okay. And we didn't understand. They didn't understand that for some time what was going on for this until one night a flight engineer. Uh, noticed that his well this TAT gauge was dropping down and his wasn't and they looked over the front and the thing had iced up and that's where uh, uh, the first indication that the industry had that we had this problem okay. and we were the first airline to have that. Now I was on the DC-10 at this stage, didn't get involved with it except I did get involved with it when I moved into the technical department of flight operations and. The, um we, had, we tried it with the, the manufacturer of the probe, was Rosemount, I tried to get them to increase the uh, temperature of the probe so it wouldn't ice up. Uh, they put the maximum water as they could in it and it still was icing up so they couldn't put any more heat into it because it was affecting the temperature that was being sensed. Right. Yeah. Um, and I fought this for Twenty years backwards and forwards was just an interesting aside, yeah. but fought it for twenty years, and it was twenty years, uh, ten years after I retired. Oh, at the time, let's go back a bit. When uh, the uh, the flight, uh, the uh, company had this problem, they produced a, uh, a checklist uh, that would obviate, that will allow you um, safety. Yes you could use other other systems and this this checklist um, they asked Boeing uh, if if they could implement the checklist and uh, Boeing wouldn't change their system but gave the company, I think I'm right saying Pete, it was a letter of no technical objection uh, to to using that system
3: and they they subsequently did incorporate it into their (laughs) tent Okay. Yep. 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 Um, I just, if, if I could just add uh, to what Neb said, I was uh, the second one to see this event. Yeah. Uh, we were going Auckland, Honolulu, and we're up in the intertropic Convergence zone, and we uh, we flew into some very serious cloud and. Uh, then which hadn't appeared on the radar and that that's a another story the the aircraft that we got was the first where they introduced flat plate antennas for the weather radar and they subsequently they just weren't picking up the cumulonimbus clouds at at altitude okay and uh, the Air Force at the same time had got their 727s which they purchased from United yep. and they did a, a significant number of modifications on them to get them into t- their requirement and that included the same uh, radar and they experienced the same issues. Okay. They weren't seeing cloud and they <laughs> were flying into it. <coughs> and uh, <clears throat> but this, um, and it turned out that uh, the manufacturer hadn't tested it above. They'd only put it in a jet-prop airplane and hadn't been above eighteen thousand feet with it. But really? it was certified.
4: Well, uh, but, but also, that was over the, over the over the land. Yes. And the ice over land is different from ice mm. over the sea. Uh, oh, believe yeah, it or not, yeah. in clouds. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that's what they found out later on, of course. Oh. So <laughs> I, one of the one of the. Times I was up in America, I had to go and fly in a um, Falcon de- uh, jet aircraft with the new uh, improved and radar in it. and I did that as a for a test. I can't remember the year that we did that, mm. uh, but but that caused modifications to our aircraft. Yeah. You know, and you. You wouldn't have seen that. No. That's on the screen no. that's down there now. Right. In fact, right. you'd be turning right about now if yes, you did yes, see you that. Would. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't see
3: it. And that, that's what happened that night with us. I mean, that, that was there. We flew into it. And uh, again, I was, um, I was with, I'd mentioned Spike Jones before, but I was with uh, Spike that night. And uh, he, he was afterwards really upset that it happened because he was a very vigilant pilot and, and uh, competent. And again I I had noticed that the upper limit, uh, those little triangles there were were reducing and the power was coming coming off, so we disconnected the water throttle, set the thrust manually, and uh, because I'd seen the difference between the total air temperatures on this gauge and that yep. gauge. Yeah. And there were operators who had the, the gauge back there who it uh, became the subject of, um, of operators meetings as well yeah. and uh, they said no it never happened and uh, I was uh, just before I retired I was contacted by the chief flight engineer of another company that said they'd never seen it and he said oh, we've just had Tet probe icing. <laughs> <laughs> First time I said you've been getting it for all those years and not seeing it. <laughs> and
4: it, it wasn't. Always, it was quite often subtle too, because you'd, yes. you know, Pete said you'd, they flew into bad weather, but <coughs> you could be flying through a stratus layer yeah, yeah. at night time, not know yeah. you're there. So we, we took to the option of flying with a light on, oh, so nice. you could see the cloud at night. Quite often you wouldn't worry it's about a it. A lot. light that shines out. Oh yeah, the, one, of the, one of these. Uh, yeah. yep. Yeah. Runway light, I think it, No, well, that was on the right. undercarriage. No, on the wing light. Wing well, right. the light? There's a wing light, yeah. Okay, the, yeah, there. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Uh, turn that on so you'd have always have a light. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of those ones. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and that just, you know, if it's a moonlit night, you didn't have to worry about it because you can see, that it was just in case you could run this. Of course, we always monitored that. That was the best indicator. You could, what you were looking at, when, it, when the TAT probe uh, froze up, the air couldn't flow through it and so you got the latent temperature of frozen ice which was zero and uh, but, uh, it yeah. would run back to the zero point within, within the probe so that's what it was up to. But
2: when you were uh, put into the technical department did you also have to do a certain number of flying hours uh, to keep up your...
4: Yes and, and that, that became a big problem because when I took over the technical uh, department I'd been deputy to Brian Horn, but the company was pruning back, and we had no deputy. So I took over as manager and had no deputy, and found myself in the office more and more, until Civil Aviation became quite concerned about uh, what was going on within uh, flight operations and made an edict that you had to achieve at least 30 hours a month. Okay. Uh, so, and I think that's probably still pertains. Um, so yeah, so I, I would you know, personally do a trip to London and back, which would uh, give me the 30 hours. But um, we, were, we were, of course, it, it, towards the 1993 time, the future air navigation system which I talked about, which we'd built in as much as we knew about into the 747-400 and all the airlines did at that stage. there wasn't any and when it did arrive down around 97-98 the amount of um, data that we expected it to uh, require was more than double so we had to uh, go and significantly modify the the nav systems to accommodate this huge amount of data and of course nowadays it's, um, it's the no- normal standard issue and I was quite Um, chuffed a while ago when my son uh, who's also flying in the company has a little Pacer aircraft and when he flies it in the the mountains in the South Island asked me to do a a flight watch for him and so I use flight radar 24 Mm -hmm. and there was this um, and that uses ADS-B which was one of the uh, components we identified way back in uh, the 90s that would be required of some type yeah, to yeah. replace radar and there it was uh, radar 24 i could see his aircraft follow it everywhere and that sort of to me sort of brought the introduction of flight nav for me to, uh, oh sorry not of that of uh, fans what the introduction of fans to an end except for one thing and that's um, and it may happen the aircraft are still flying in magnetic heading where nowadays all the headings are deduced in TRUE and there's a magnetic table put on top of that to give you a magnetic heading. Um, All ocean-going ships navigate in TRUE and have done for many years. Um, ICAO wants to move to TRUE. um, That's going to be a huge cost, but I
3: believe it will come. Nowadays you used to have to go to TRUE if you got up into to sixty-five, north. 65, uh, 65 north, north. About sixty-five yeah. north. If you're coming across from yeah, London to Los Angeles,
4: true or true or magnetic. Okay. Uh, use that. And so going London to Los Angeles, uh, you, you'd quite often depending on the wind. Be up amongst that over sixty-five north. Because you
2: fly over the likes of top of Greenland or
4: over a place called Sob Story, which I thought in the middle of Greenland was a great <laughs> name for
1: it.
4: <laughs> Did you guys feel um, like I know that
2: the pilots all loved the seven four seven, and the crew loved the seven four seven, and they call it the Queen of the Skies. Did you feel like you were better than any other airline pilots at the time, or not better but
3: luckier? Or no, it was a it was a good. I mean, this one, uh, as I said, it wasn't is technically advanced as the as the DC ten. Yeah. But uh, some of the the systems were all straightforward and uh, the DC ten had some issues, you know, didn't have enough hydraulic capability and they'd, they'd added a bit to it and and that often created issues but well, sometimes created issues. But as, um, before we got the aeroplane, Don Olive, my compatriot, uh, did a, a ride with Qantas to observe and he <coughs> went up to Port Moresby and back and he was highly amused at the fact that the, that the operating flight engineer described it as just a big Foden truck,
4: hmm.
3: <laughs> 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 it's straightforward. <laughs> It is a big truck it is. Yeah.
4: but it's great it great great big truck wonderful and, and it, it works well yeah this is the, this is the only aircraft uh, that I've flown that, that you can feel ground effect on landing okay yeah uh, you know it, uh, it, it's there you can feel it every time you land uh, some people said they you never feel it but I, I believe you can and, and ground effect is usually at a height of half the wingspan and as you're flaring just before you flare, you can feel it cut come into this ground effect and it's a it's a great big thing and now I was coming back to the DC-10 I was a first officer on the DC-10 whilst Pete was still on the uh, like he was still on DC-8 but that first um, few months on the DC-10 were were fraught in the hydraulic systems badly Uh, uh, well I didn't know what the issue was but I remember one night uh, going to uh, Auckland Honolulu and we had to divert to Tahiti. We had two hydraulic systems down from overheating yeah. and the third one, the temperature was coming up and luckily we were um, could divert into Nandi and we landed there and the two hydraulic pumps on each end and two of the systems were down, they'd overheated and the, the one that we were on, the, uh, one of the pumps was overheating and they turned blue when they overheat, so that's how much heat was going into them. And it turned out that on the Series, they had the same pumps basically as the DC, as the Series 10, yeah. but because we were having long periods in cruise, no flight controls were moving, so therefore the cooling uh, flow out of the that used to circulate around the pumps and come back into the tank there wasn't any movement of oil so therefore everything was sort of stationary and uh, so they devised a system where every hour or so we'd disconnect the autopilot and and fly it manually and that got the oil moving around again until they did a a workaround because the cooling system was in the fuel tank so the fuel would come out the oil would come out of the hydraulic pump into the fuel tank in the cooling circuit so it wasn't doing that when you were cruising with autopilot on, it, what it really says is that the pilots can't fly steady.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, so it was the DC 1030 that we yes. had and as Nev said that the hydraulic pumps were relevant to the DC 1010 yep. uh, ten series and uh, but the 30 had more capacity.
2: Yep. What, what actually happened to our DC 10s when they retired, where did they go?
4: Well, one went to Virgin, didn't it? Virgin uh, pick up a DC-10. No, no. I'm sorry. Um, I, I, I one, of them, oh, one of them went to American Airlines because I had to go back to Chile uh, two years afterwards when their um, lease expired and, and fly with the pilots up to um, San Francisco. Yeah. They, they leased one. I think ILFC, International Lease Finance Co- Corporation, bought it, I think, and took it up there. But I can't... No, sorry, I, I, uh, David, I can't remember the no, detail on that. I, I can't.
3: Either, excuse me, but I've got an idea. One or two went to one of the freight companies. Couldn't uh, well have done, Peter, yeah. Um, uh, I guess I just can't, can't recall just where they did go. Yeah, no no problem. I think there's
2: only the one left now. Um, there's which, one somewhere. Yeah, which is sitting there. Oh,
4: you, see, you see them as um, as firefighters, you know, they're yeah, dumping, yeah, dumping yeah, yeah. in. I'm not yeah, too sure that's a 10 or a 30. I Yeah. the saying
3: was, uh,
4: But they, they were, yeah, they're a lovely airplane, aren't huh?
3: they? Is it Jilly? Uh, no, not Chile, um Cuba. I yeah. 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 yeah.
4: remember taxing into, we used to operate um, Auckland, Port Moresby, Hong Kong, you know, in the DC-8. Okay. Uh, for, for a while it was uh, in, in league with um, in New, Guinea in New Guinea and Cafe. Cafe yeah. And I um, remember taxiing in, into the terminal and you you taxied into towards a fence, the terminal towards off to your right, and I was taxied in there and stopped this 20th century magnificent beast and there was a, a man hanging on the wire looking at us with a bone in his nose. <laughs> it was just uh, yes, interesting.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did you sometimes see that EC10s with the centerline gear either up or down? Uh,
4: it was a money saving I mentioned before the money saving yeah uh, so the, the certified landing weight is what you paid your landing fees on and uh, uh, if you had the center gear up uh, and you knew you weren't going to require it for the takeoff weight uh, you would you would crew a, a lower landing fee. Okay. And that's basically what it was all about. But you had to know what was going on for the next flight. If it was going to be full, you needed the gear down. Okay. And it wasn't an easy thing. You had to. No. <laughs> it wasn't an easy thing to get down. If you're away from a, a place where you could swing it into a hole, then you had to deflate the strut and get it down and pull it forward with, it with some vehicle and lock it down. But yeah, it was basically finance. Okay, um,
2: with the with the DC eight, I believe the navigator had. Um, their own section but
4: they could use a sextant. Yeah the, the navigator sat uh, behind the pilot uh, facing uh, towards the aft and he had a set of instruments ins- or flying instruments there and uh, used a, a Colisman um, sextant which would poke out through the hole in the roof and uh, take the sun shots from that or all the star shots from that. So it was a basic navigation system uh, Used pressure pattern flying a lot uh, and using uh, star fixes or, or, or star and sun fixes, three using three, three body, heavenly bodies to, uh, to determine a position, most probable position.
2: So, when you say a hole in the roof, was that like an astrodome? Or was it, it no, it wasn't.
4: Hole? It <laughs> wasn't an astrodome. It was um, uh, two an airlock type thing that you, the sextant hung on a on a mount, and you opened the airlock and pushed it through oh, a oh, round oh. Oh. hole. So it had a seal in it. So when it, When it went up into position, um, uh, it it sealed, and you didn't hear the whistling noise. But it whistled as you as you were pushing it through, and the electra had the same. And um, you know, it used to become a a fine for the navigator. First thing I do when I get on the aircraft was take the sextant out, take a shot of the tail, and and check any errors in the the, uh, thing. And if he got down. Of course, there was no noise when you're on the ground. He got down and didn't shut that little little hatch up. When you took off, there was an increasing air noise, and it was getting louder and louder and shrieking. The aircraft
3: was trying to pressurise, and <laughs> it was all going get. out through the holes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah,
4: another another thing that you know, didn't navigators, um, yeah, some of them were characters. So you used to get the end of the sextant, which had a nice glass prism on it. And put a bit of China pencil over it, you know, and he couldn't see the, the stars he was looking for, and there's great rattling down here, books opening and trying to find <laughs> where he made his calculation
3: error. Well, Neb was talking about uh, pressure pattern flying and, and so on. On the Electra, we were generally cruising between 18 or 17,000 and 25,000 feet, and, and mainly in, in the Around the twenty thousand feet there across the Tasman, and it was just the wrong height because generally you're just in the tops of all the cumulonimbus clouds, and and made it very difficult for the navigators to to get a shot. And and also the pilots were wanting to zigzag around the clouds; and <laughs> they needed it to be stable as they were taking a shot. Yeah. And so, really. Pressure pattern was sort of yeah. used a lot there, wasn't it? There?
4: I got a, just looking at this morning at a thing. I, I was on a flight out of uh, Sydney to Christchurch, and I got the Tasman speed record. I'd, I'd forgotten about that, but um, yes. I was a flight engineer on that flight with the uh, captain C. J. Lacuta, and uh, looking at, at that, and it was two hours and fifteen minutes o- overhead which is pretty good out of us. It's got a
3: 117 knot tailwind. Uh, well, we, we used but to, we have standard cruise speed of 250 knots. Yeah, well, and 225 and to two
4: 250 was yeah. the band. I don't know if you remember the early days in the Electra, there was a lot of uh, wings falling off them. They had a problem, this big uh, four-bladed propeller, big paddle out the front, and it had a it developed a condition like, it was called a whirling mode, where it would be like gyroscopic and um, Depending on the on the uh, harmonic motion in the aircraft, it would um, the engine would start nodding, oh, yeah. and, and would tear the uh, the wing off. Oh, no. So that that caused us, uh, after about a year that I was flying, to get into this band where you couldn't fly uh, above 250 and uh, 225 was a minimum cruise speed. So that was a sort of a drift climbing operation to keep within that band. Um, that. Caused uh, uh, what's called a leap program, uh, or Lockheed. I've forgotten what it was, or what, what it meant. But they they tilted the engines up about four degrees, and if you look at the um, where the firewall is on the on the electra, there's a pie section comes out, uh, shaped like that, on the e- on the engine mount, top to bottom. So the the engine had already been tilted a little bit, and this thing just. Had a bigger pie section put in there, so they they went back to Lockheed, and some of them went to Hong Kong Hong Kong Engineering, I think. Uh, some of them went to, uh, and that was, I suppose, that had been done by the time you came on. Yes, Pete. it was, and, yes. and
3: they, but they also put more structure back in the wings yes. within the wing, uh, and uh, and that was structure that had been taken out by the weight saving committee early on in the design of the aeroplane. Oh, you know, right, okay. it,
4: it wasn't like an Orion wing. It, it, uh, an Orion wing is, is, um, has ribs and metal over the ribs with These were planks and they'd been um, cut out in the middle you know, to lighten them and that sort of thing. So the whole wing, it's a plank wing and the whole wing is a, full, is a fuel tank, well sealed. Yeah. I can remember uh, seeing a... Um, after an overhaul at Mangri one time, somebody was in the Electra and pulled out a vacuum cleaner which had been sealed in there with the fuel fuel sealer <laughs> and had <laughs> been there since day one since it was built. So. <laughs> oh,
3: it was after the LEAP program. Was that, it? They yeah, yeah. came, came back and they found it in there with the a pipe. Okay. And uh, they well, also, after the LEAP, after they were worked with the, through the LEAP program, uh the speed was allowed to be increased but we maintained the
4: 250 maximum they got that propeller was a huge thing on on the front of an airplane and it's it's the only aircraft i've been into where you could go into a stall and hold your attitude and open the throttles and it would immediately take you out of it because there's just so much air coming over the wings right 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 but if you got into a secondary stall from that and didn't relax it but got into a secondary stall it gave you the biggest shaking you've ever had it, huh. it was a good
3: stall that yeah. really, okay. really you knew it was but also the engine was constant speed yes and so it was just the, the pitch of the propeller that was moving when you moved the, the throttles it was changing the pitch, the pitch but the We're engine right. was operating at 13,820 rpm yeah. and the prop speed was 1,080 80?
2: 1080 or 1050. 50, 1050. So um, with the Electra, did, did you have a simulator like this, or did you have to practice for the wheelwork?
4: No, we, we didn't have a simulator. Um, Qantas did, and later in the in our Electra program, uh, some crews went over to Qantas and did a, a training some training simulator training over there. Uh, and I I, I did uh, do some of my checks in there later in later years, but no, we didn't do it. Didn't most of it was done. It was all done on the aircraft, and, uh, yeah, in th- yeah. In those days. So. so you were actually really doing the stalls. Doing stalls, and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. And
3: a lot of other things, uh, boost off, which no yes. no hydraulics and you know no no flap landings. And uh, I recall one time at Fenoepai, uh, we had uh, we had a, a tyre failure on the 24th landing. Oh wow! And that was, and that was on a boost-off landing, so we're, we're very fast, and uh, it uh, did quite a bit of damage to the airplane. So a lot, things were changed, and and of course also the aircraft that we lost on a training exercise at Funuapai uh was a particular exercise that Lockheed had uh, come up with because they'd done it during their test flying and it, it was really a, I mean I, I guess we can say it now, it was a ridiculous exercise and you would never use it in commercial operations. Okay, it's more
2: of a military exercise. Yes, yes. Okay. Dangerous. So, uh, so Nev, I've, I've heard from a very good source that um, you're very popular with the 747 crews for coming up with a crew rest.
4: Yeah, that, that uh, took a bit of uh, winning that one uh, but it, I think it was the best crew rest we'd, we'd ever had and, and all I uh, did was move the flight deck door back uh, to incorporate the toilet at the front there and so we had our uh, if you walked towards in, in through the door that, that I achieved uh, there was two seats on the right then the toilet and then you stepped up into the cockpit And as you went into the cockpit, on the left, there was another door that opened up into the two bunks, which were the standard issue Boeing bunks, and and they came with their own issues. um, Because Boeing, although we'd been through it with the 200, the the aircraft flies at two and a half degrees nose up. So if you get into the bunk with your head aft, (laughs) then you're lying two and a half degrees, and it was most uncomfortable. You wouldn't think it made any difference, but it did and we overcame that uh, by putting a two and a half degree wedge underneath the mattress. Simple, we didn't alter anything, just a simple wedge um, went in there and that levelled it up and and that brings up another interesting memory that when when the Queen flew with us in 1995 the whole first-class area was uh, shut off for the Queen herself. The rest of the aircraft uh, was the Queen's staff in in business and we carried normal passengers from from the business afterwards. The business was upstairs and downstairs uh, at that time. I was asked to to go and uh, check this uh, 400 aircraft which we were using for the Queen's flight and it's one that had come out of um, an ex-Barrack aircraft with GE engines on it, uh, because that was the last one uh, that had been overhauled and was still in, in very nice condition, so we didn't pull an aircraft off the line to uh, primp it for the Queen, we just used uh, what was available. Yeah. And they would uh, leased a couch or a bed of British Airways, because they had had the Queen, but they used to use a special aircraft for the Queen, so we leased this thing. And it was there in, in first class. And I asked, uh, uh, "Is the bed level, or is it two and a half degrees uh, tail up?" And uh, they said, "Oh, it's level." And I said, "Well, the, the queen's not going to be very happy yeah. lying on on this bed." And um, and I said, "We better do a wedge like we did for the crew rest." And that's exactly what happened. They they put that in. And the other thing that time was uh, the company and the world was going into a no smoking era so to to achieve that one of the things they did was leave this no smoking sign on all the time being a a very digital aircraft uh, that could be programmed into uh, various compartments whether you had it on or off so if you if you turned up here turned the no smoking seatbelt sign on uh, it would come on in all compartments unless you electronically had turned it off, in it. Um, and uh, I, it was evening uh, that I was looking, I was late leaving work when I was asked to go down and do this, and uh, it was quite dark in the when I turned the lights off in the first class compartment, and there was these, all these no smoking signs on. So I asked them if they could electronically turn them off, and we, we got them turned off. So I, I think she probably had a better deal uh, from a Sort of a critical overlook, over yeah. if you will use that word. I'm not saying I'm smart. I just, you know, taking it from her perspective, and yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And I think it was a, a, a viable thing. That was, yeah, that was an interesting, um, interesting flight. So that was
2: her very first commercial flight. Wasn't it?
4: That was yeah. That that was uh, yeah. It was um, at the time. If you, if you go back into that era, uh, the, the Queen or the royal family was being chastise as being a, a big burden on the public, and money was—they had their own aircraft and all that sort of thing—and uh, that, so when Chogham comes up, uh, the responsibility for the, um, or the cost for the uh, sovereign's travel is, is with the com- country that's hosting, and so in, uh, New Zealand was hosting in 1995, and so. Uh, it was decided because of all this issue that the, the royal, in fact it was sort of a royal decree almost, that uh, they would travel on a near New Zealand flight. And so that it was the aircraft was specially um, chosen, as I said, and, and uh, it, was, it was simple, it was uh, uh, London, Los Angeles, Auckland, the Queen uh, came out with us, and Prince Philip was in South America, South Africa at the time, and he came across the Chogham, and when we went back it was Auckland, uh, L- um, LA, London to drop the Queen and Prince Philippot and then Frankfurt uh, because it was a uh, uh, Lond- uh, Los Angeles Frankfurt flight okay. and that, that was going to cause uh, big problems for the, as far as the company was concerned for the passengers who had booked on a Los Angeles Frankfurt flight and were going to go into London Uh, first and have and have a longer flight Uh, in the event it was a non-event I was given a special uh, thing from a company's PR if we got stroppy passengers and didn't like this thing but I'd been been around and talked to the passengers and without exception they were all extremely chuffed that the Queen was on our flight and uh, the, the common consensus of these German, and there was a majority of German passengers, was that they they missed their own royal family, uh, so oh, right. from, from all those years ago. So, um, so we did. We went. Uh, the the lead guide did. Uh, was uh, Los Angeles to London to Frankfurt, mm-hmm. versing. So there was uh, four captains, two first officers, and two second officers for the. the two flights. So we did London, Los Angeles, changed crew, and uh, Ken Mulgrew and uh, his crew had brought the flight on to Auckland, and then a fortnight later it was reversed and he brought the aircraft back to LA and I took it back to London. And uh, we landed in London. The Queen had to be there uh, at 10am on the 11th of November, which of course is Armistice Day, and she was going... Uh, To the ceremony, uh, reviewing the ceremony, and so we had to be there at ten o'clock, and we were everywhere. You went, we had the purple Airways and and that sort of thing. You know, Uh, it it worked well, even in America. um, uh, Once, once they figured, they'd they'd forgot it for for a start, but once they figured what you know, sorted out who we were, uh, direct to everywhere. You know, no mugging around. Yeah, and. I think security on that flight was uh, covert, you wouldn't know there was any security, yeah. except when we pulled into America and about 20 people appeared along the top of the um, uh, terminal building with heavy guns uh, in the protection system. Okay. Uh, yeah, We did have um, protection on board, um, I, I knew who it was and it, it, it was a non-event.
3: But they weren't allowed onto the ramp at Los
4: Angeles. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't Those no. people. No, they, in fact, they had to stay yeah. on the aircraft, and, and yeah. we st- I stayed with them. It, there was an issue you know, with sidearms and that sort of stuff. But it was easier to leave them on a, inside the aircraft. And yeah. so, so, did you actually um, get to meet
2: the, the Queen or Prince Philip while they were on board?
4: Yeah, I, d- I did. Um, on, on the way out from London, I, I went down during cruise and introduced myself. Attended to the queen, and um, she was uh, very knowledgeable of New Zealand, very knowledgeable of um, of flying, uh, easy to talk to, and um, from a, coming from a farming background, we discussed um, dairy, New Zealand dairy. Uh, uh, it was a, a great chat. I had a, a cup of coffee, and she had a cup of tea, and got the sh- shake the ungloved hand and awesome. uh, it, it, yeah it was it was very very nice um, and coming back um, coming into London uh, Prince Philip came up on the flight deck about, about two hours out and um, <coughs> coming into the top of DC and I, I figured that he w- he was looking for a, a, flight, a seat on the flight deck <laughs> so I asked him if he would like to uh, on the flight deck for the landing and he said oh well that was the object so so he so he did and uh and i went back and sat on the uh, i had to go and well, that jack griffiths was the other captain with us and, and uh, he was flying the aircraft because i had to go and bid the queen farewell once we arrived yep. and of course we were going to refuel the aircraft so i stayed on board the aircraft having bid farewell to the queen and while the refuelling was going on because the passengers were still on board you know, so I stayed in the cockpit and the rest of the crew then went off and had the chance to line up out, off the aircraft and meet the Queen which was yeah. bloody good I'm pleased that they achieved that yes and um, but you know he, he was giving us a running commentary on uh, on on aviation and very knowledgeable Yeah. and I found him a, a great great guy to to talk to and um, yeah we got into Los Angeles into London, and I said, "Are you going to the uh, ceremony, sir?" And he said, "Oh, bugger that! I'm sorry, no." He said, uh, <laughs> "No, no." He said, uh, "I'm going grouse shooting." <laughs> now, after that flight out of Auckland, he got into his Range Rover and drove off. It was sure. the first day of grouse shooting, and uh, drove <laughs> off. And I admired the guy because I, I subsequently met him again about uh, four, or five years later in 19, yeah, 1999. I, I was awarded um, the Brackley Memorial Trophy and that was at the ceremony at the Guild Hall in, in London. He was the head of the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators and uh, when I went up to receive it he said, oh we've we've met before, tell me where and I, and I told him, you know, he gave me a reminder about the flight deck of a 7-4 and uh, that that sort of stopped the show for a while because we were told we weren't allowed to talk to him, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted to keep talking, so yeah, it was a bit of an embarrassing moment there. But uh, prodigious memory, you know.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. Isn't
4: oh, it? I, I, I really admired the guy. You know, he, he wasn't everybody's cup of tea, I know, but uh, I liked him. I think he was a great guy. Wonderful life he had. So um, you had those in- incredibly
2: important passengers on board. But let's talk about the rest of the passengers um, uh, on a general flight. Um, how many people would you normally have had on board if it was a capacity uh, on each of the different airliner jets
4: that you? You are well, now. You've got me going. I think it was 420 on a 400 series. Okay. Um, the
3: Electra was 99. 90 something. Yeah. 99. 99. Yeah. The DC8 was 120. 21. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. DC. 230 yeah. odd.
4: I think we've had two
3: fifty on it. Two fifty yeah. was 250. it? Yeah. Uh, the simple seven two hundred was around uh, about four hundred, but I think it got down to three ninety five yeah. or thereabouts, three
4: ninety four. So you could you could fill it up depending on what you were doing. You know, when you had you you were configured it for the first class, business class, mm. economy. Yeah. Yep. With all economy. You remember that one of uh, Qantas when they had the Darwin uh, big blow up there, they came out with 400, uh, no 600, it It was a huge number of people, it was big, I can't remember what it was, so it just depends how you configure the aircraft. Right,
2: Right. so that's um, the increase with each of those uh, aircraft that you went through, it, it, it just shows the sort of increased level of travel that New Zealanders were doing. And I mean, you know, well, up until last year, it's just, it's just got more and more travel, hasn't it?
4: Well, it, it, has, it's, it It's going to be interesting to see how it recovers because mm. it, you know, I, I wondered myself whether Rolls Royce would survive uh, yeah. with the issues that were going on with with the engines, and then Boeing with the uh, 737 Max. Max? Uh, Max. Yeah, yeah, uh, but they, they seem to weathered it, but.
2: Yeah, yeah, I
4: that's think
2: that's. that's so, I understand that you might have seen something very interesting in terms of uh, uh, astronauts coming back f- from space.
3: Well, yes, I, I, I did. It, it was uh, extremely interesting. I think twenty eighth of December, nineteen sixty nine. I'd, I'd have to check my logbook, but. Uh, uh, we were in a DC-8 going Auckland-Honolulu and uh, it was known that uh, we would have to uh, divert off track uh, because the Apollo 8 was going to come back and splash down Okay. and Apollo 8 was the first one to go right round the moon Uh, so it was uh, you know, that in itself was an extremely interesting operation and so we uh, we were briefed uh, for, uh, prior to the flight, for uh, what uh, would happen and at the same time Pan American were uh, going Auckland Honolulu in a 707. Uh, it turned out that they were <coughs> round about a similar position to us, but, but 4,000 feet higher. And about halfway through the <coughs> through the flight, <coughs> me, we um <coughs> we were uh, told to um, divert to a position. Uh, to the northwest of the track and it was a heading change of 45 degrees to, to go to this position okay. and then we, uh, we straightened up and, and uh, were proceeding to, uh, to Honolulu from that position And uh, we were listening. uh, NBC Radio were were in contact with the uh, with the astronauts. Was um, uh, Borman was the ship commander, and he was talking to them. And then, and we were able to hear that. And. So it was obvious that it was it was going to be soon that they were going to re-enter, and the cabin crew woke up the passengers. It was uh, the middle of the night, and uh, we then they lost radio contact because during the re-entry they they lost radio contact, and then. We saw this glow coming up from about the 10 uh, 10 o'clock position uh, from the horizon came up up and up and finished up going pretty well over the top of this. It was the most incredible sight that I've ever seen and you see a lot of sights you know from the northern lights to all sorts of other things. Yeah. But this was just amazing, this brilliant glow with a great white incandescent tail behind it and bits of the heat shield breaking off all fluttering wow. down uh, and then they got radio contact again and, and uh, with Borman and he said well we're in good shape now and we're uh, preparing to splash down and yeah the fact that the passengers saw it all saw it as well came over the top and then out over the other side and at about the four o'clock position um it uh it just the light fluffed out and that's when it stopped the parachute deployed and they landed in the ocean and uh, we, we heard all this on the on the radio. Uh, what happened then was that they had they uh, got a, a helicopter just picked the whole unit up and put it on an aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier went on to Pango, Pango and uh, they put them on a uh, uh, C141, and uh, the next day they went from Panga Panga to Honolulu. At that stage, uh, we our duty was Auckland, Honolulu, and uh, overnight or two uh, two overnights, and, and back to Auckland. And the next day we uh, we were aware that uh, the TV was. had had full coverage and so the three or four of us were watching in the hotel room and we were staying right on the on the beach. Uh, We saw them on TV land at uh, Hickam and uh, because they were then that was their first return to American soil so they got off on the ground. There was a big welcome. They got back on the aeroplane, and it was taking them back to Houston. We saw it take off on TV, and then out from the balcony on the in the hotel room, we saw the aircraft disappear out. And uh, so the whole episode, you know, was a was a real really interesting experience. Yeah, and I was uh, Ian, and I were in Chicago, and we were on a. Hop on hop off tour and, and they it stopped at the Museum of Transport and Technology yeah. and uh, we we couldn't go in the main door they it was because they were doing alterations and they took us around we, the door we walked into uh, was straight into an exhibit of the Apollo program and there was the Apollo 8 Wow. <laughs> The capsule, capsule, <laughs> wow. sitting right there in front of us. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so I felt well, I'd really seen the whole, uh, whole thing.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm. D- did either of you ever see anything in the air that you couldn't explain? Any UFO type things? No, no, no. never,
4: never drank that much. <laughs> <laughs> Are they official now? You can talk about yeah. it. You're allowed <laughs> no, to talk about it. Never, never did
2: see them. Yeah. Did you did you ever fly on a uh, with a 747 with a fifth pod under
4: underneath? Y- well, yes, I did, uh, but I also flew a DC8 uh, oh, with, really? the, with the fifth okay. p- p- pod as well, and uh, flew one of those back out of um, Honolulu. Uh, we'd had an aircraft up there which had a fa- failed a wheel on takeoff and put punched a hole in the wing. DC8 and. Uh, I went back to do the test flying on that, and we had a there was a spare engine requirement up there, which uh, didn't need any more, so we bought that home from that. Okay.
3: So, could I, I, I just add to that? Sure. Uh, that DC eight incident at uh, Honolulu, we uh, at that stage it was the only airplane we had operating because you may recall the DC tens were all grounded at one stage, and okay, it was yeah. during the DC ten grounding that that okay. happened. So, we finished we had at that stage no aircraft to, wow. to fly,
4: that's <laughs> not good when you're dealing with. No. No. <laughs> Another interesting thing I, uh, of that, I, I had by that stage um, done my course at the University of Southern California so I was looking after the incidents and accidents requirement within flight operations. So I did the incident uh, review on that one and listening to the um, the tape afterwards from the Honolulu Tower became quite interesting because Within New Zealand, at that stage, we were required by civil aviation to give the number of P.O.B. on board at the first communication with the tower. And uh, in America, that wasn't so. But the first officer in this case had given uh, the number of passengers on on board, P.O.B. on board. And as we as they were taxing out, the tower had asked him, "You know, why why are you telling us how many people you've got on board?" And uh, Greg had. Uh, the first officer replied, oh, it, "I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. It's a requirement in New Zealand. I just, I just forgot." He was uh, up front. Yeah. Yeah. When, when they started the takeoff and aborted, they were just, uh, just under V1. And uh, when they aborted, um, and he called out the abort, an emergency, and uh, the tower could be heard on the tape calling out the fire services and telling them how many people were on board.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, so that so just proves how yeah,
4: valuable that it was. It was, yeah. It was an interesting thing to do, and I think that's uh, all worldwide now. I don't know. No, no, the, the uh, digital media would um, yeah, would do yeah, that they're now. They're, yeah, yeah. I think. That, uh, well, you'd hope so, anyway. <laughs> yes.
2: This, yeah. One interesting thing is taking a seven four seven into Wellington. Can you tell me about that, Peter?
3: Yes, we. Uh, we operating Los Angeles, Auckland, non-stop, and uh, and so the alternate was Christchurch, and sometimes you'd get the headwind staying in longer and and so on, and and it was becoming quite problematic, so. The uh, decision was made to use Ohākia with the permission of the Air Force yep. and so that became a part of the operating procedure but in case Ohākia was going to block out civilian aircraft because of their military requirements. Yep. And um, it was determined that we should be able to use Wellington as a uh, last option, if you like, gotcha and uh, so the performance data all fitted and uh, all was okay and but uh, we needed to be able to really demonstrate to Civil Aviation that it was uh, was going to be okay. And uh, so we took the aeroplane down to Wellington. Um, I was the operating flight engineer and we couldn't have had a more perfect day. It wasn't your typical Wellington day, (laughs) I can assure you. And uh, so we were landing uh, to uh, to the north. There was about a ten knot wind straight down the runway. And uh, you'll see on the the auto brake switch, there's a uh, maximum uh, one, two, and three. There are various levels and and automatic and. Uh, So um, anyway, uh, Lindsay thought it'd be better to have it on maximum. So uh, we landed. He did a very good landing, but um, I thought he would have kicked out the auto brakes sooner. He he left them engaged, and we could have turned off parallel to the fire station, Uh, but we couldn't because the the size of the 747 we had to proceed right to the end and and turn off and right and there were other requirements too they couldn't have had aircraft parallel because uh, of the wingspan and yeah. and uh, so we taxied and we parked at the yeah. terminal and determined we could do all that yeah. and uh, we uh, Took off and did another three, two or three landings, okay. but it attracted a big crowd, and the uh, on the seawall at the at the southern end. Uh, somehow, people got up there and they were viewing it okay. from that, the, those big boulders on the top of the seawall, yep, yep. and. Uh, course for uh, performance requirements and with a short runway we were using full thrust for takeoff and uh, so uh, I think it was the second takeoff we took off and proceeded uh, with the normal routine and air traffic control s- said to us will you blew a, <laughs> a spectator off the <laughs> we literally blew him off the <laughs> Top of the seawall. Oh, wow. so, <laughs> I mean, I would have thought that security or somebody would have cleared them anyway, but yeah, yeah. not so. So uh, yes, that was very interesting, and and also uh, just I uh, referred to Hacky as the ultimate. Um, sometimes, or so that the the air force sent people up to Auckland and they worked on the ramp with our people and so they knew what to do and so on. We had a set of steps down there for them to access the aeroplane because their steps you know, reached up. Yeah. But uh, our uh, manager of performance engineering Bob Fletcher and the uh, commander of the station were in discussion and they thought well it'd be a good idea to um, just if we were able to to drop an aeroplane in there unexpectedly uh, yep. and say that we were diverting from Auckland and yep. and um, so um, I was I rang with the or Bob did rather uh, with the station commander that we would do it on a day and so he was aware of it and we did it uh, on a day we we did a lot of operational flight checks uh, during the uh, sale of the aircraft to Virgin Atlantic and this is a flight check that we did in preparation for the aeroplane because it was going to uh, Xiamin in China for Section 41 modification which was a huge job and uh, so we were doing an operational flight check, and uh, so called up our operations control and said we were diverting to Ohakia, and then called Ohakia, or they then advised Ohakia, and uh, we proceeded down there. We, uh, on the descent, we were pretty well over Whanganui, and the TV, one reporter, Said, "What's that 747 doing here?" <laughs> Jumped in his car with his camera and roared off down to Hakia. Uh, the, <coughs> there was an exercise um, going on. They had to clear the the aircraft out. And we landed and uh, uh, shut down. Uh, communicated with the ground. They brought the steps out. We. Got off, and it was all um, all proved that it could happen. Yep. Uh, they were concerned that the steps were they knew were, were our people knew were housed in the back of the hangar, and could they get them out in time? And, and, uh, and apparently, when when the people on the station. Uh, were told that we were coming, it was about morning tea time and a bunch of them were in the mess and they said, oh no, garbage, no, that, that won't be happening, but uh, yeah. they were assured no, it wasn't garbage And uh, but it was a worthwhile exercise to yeah. uh, to prove that it could all work.
2: So um, how were you two involved with uh, the 767 and the seven four seven four hundred projects in terms of the deliveries?
4: Well, I was uh, not involved with the 767 uh Initial deliveries, but got involved later up later on. Okay. But I wasn't typewriter on the 76, so I always, uh, in my management position, took somebody with me uh, who who could um, fly the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, but I had the as uh, had the power of attorney to sign on behalf of the company uh, when we accepted the aircraft. Uh, when well, no, of the the first uh, time I went there for a 747 uh, 400, the initial uh, 400. It was actually a, a check that I handed over that first time um, 250 million dollars side in your hand is pretty big at yes. <laughs> the time but subsequently uh, the Americans started going electronic and and funds were transferred between banks and so we would having a- agreed to accept the aircraft because the aircraft didn't belong uh, to Boeing engineering, we didn't deal with them we dealt with Boeing uh, sales. Okay. So, and there was a it's, that's within the, their system. And um, on one of the aircraft, um, there was talk of us having to fly outside the territorial limit to sign the uh, final agreement uh, for tax purposes. Oh, well. In the end, that didn't eventuate that all that was happening for some aircraft, but, uh, but we didn't have to do that, so it, it, it became a lot easier. And with the the digital financing going on. It was just a, a bank call, bank transfers, and the telephone. You wait for the telephone to ring, and it had a particular ring, and you knew, you knew that the funds had gone through. Okay, uh, but having done all the signing and everything, and except for the aircraft, you couldn't take it until the funds had transferred. Yeah. Okay. So I, I didn't get involved with the, the initial seven that that uh, Pete was involved with.
3: Yeah. The. Um and earlier on, and with these 747-200s and the 767s, um, the transfer was taking place in, in New York. And so because of the time difference, you could only do it between 9am and 11am. It was a pretty tight uh, band. And certainly I remember 1767, uh, that Jim McRae... Uh, was there for, he was the CEO at the time, a deputy CEO at the time, and uh, they were having to run between floors to get the authority and it was taking some time, (laughs) 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 anyway, uh, so that that, uh, finally happened, but as Nev said, then... uh, transferring electronically and, and some of them, the lease aircraft, was handed over to say ILFC and uh, then ILFC handed it over to us and uh, there was all the you know, technicality. Um, there was, uh, then Air New Zealand had a, its own lease company based in Hong Kong. New Zealand International Airlines, and uh, so there were several that were uh, purchased by Air New Zealand and then handed over to New Zealand International Airlines and one of them was uh, one of the later 767-300s Nev was involved with picking up a uh, 747-400 after modification at um, well, Mobile. Mobile, Mobile, Alabama, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it it got delayed, and uh, I'd I'd uh, been away for on leave for a couple of days and got home and there was a message from Nev saying uh, I can't get to because he was another crew were going to bring that airplane back to Auckland but Nev was still involved with this acceptance over there so he said uh, you've got to go to Seattle tomorrow and then sign for the, uh, the 767 so uh, I duly did that, and uh, the uh, I was signed over to Air New Zealand, and uh, there were also credits for aircraft that were on order for uh, for future delivery. So that one only cost 97 million US. So I signed for 97 million, and uh, <laughs> still a lot. <laughs> Seemed a lot to me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, we didn't see a it. No, <laughs> yeah. but then I I had to do the signing over, and calls here, there, and everywhere, and signing it over, and it took another two hours to sign it over to New Zealand National Airlines. And so we did that, and the delivery came on the delivery the next day.
2: So, how many deliveries did each of you actually do of the aircraft?
3: Well, I was on a total of about 18 a DC10 to start with, yep. and uh, that that was that was an interesting experience in itself because uh, it it was decided that uh, they wanted more air-to-air photography. You generally with a purchase the first aircraft you get air-to-air photography and and uh, then you subsequently you might get another one after so many aircraft. But um, this DC-10 was uh, it was uh, NZS and so you know we'd had it was about number eight or nine I think eight and they, uh, they were getting more uh, more, air-to-air photography, the, the initial ones, I think, with the DC-8, it was a B-26 or some such with the tail turret taken off and oh, a guy yeah. standing with a tripod. <laughs> 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 but, wow. but this was <laughs> much more refined. There was Clay Lacey he, uh, had Learjets and he had 360-degree Rotating cameras underneath, them. Right. and uh, the the idea was to try and get shot. There was a an ad on TV that it was a sheer fluke that somebody had got it, but a DC-10 came up through the clouds, and and they they wanted okay. to get this kind of a, an image. Yeah. Well, we did um, uh, went up there. We did the. Except in flying down round um, uh, off Long Beach and uh, inland a bit, and then went up over Lake Tahoe and up over Lake Tahoe at 2,000 feet above the the lake and the Learjet shooting and taking shots, and then we uh, went into Sacramento and. uh, they had people on the ground. We had to do. Uh, we were doing ILS approaches, and and uh, they were taking shots of us off from the ground. And then we uh, got airborne again and went out over the coast north of the uh, San Francisco Harbor and came down the coast. That. Uh, about 3,000 feet with the Learjet sitting off there all all the way down, and uh, so that uh, that was a pretty full day. I recall somewhere around eight hours, and uh, the the next day, well two days later, we needed to do some more. And they but they still wanted to get the shot of us coming up above the cloud, and. Uh, so we were out between Santa Catalina and Island and, uh, and Long Beach and uh, we were sitting in between two active firing zones. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> military exercises going on. Great. But uh, we, uh, There was some cloud, we came up through it and uh, the, the pilot of the Learjet said that was absolutely fantastic. But he said they were just in the process of changing, the, <laughs> reloading their cameras, <laughs> so they didn't get it, and so we we, we never ever got that shot. But anyway, there was DC10, and then uh, it said on the 747 program, so they uh, did the first two, and uh, then we uh, and and the and the fifth. And we also went back up there for uh, the change to the D4 engine and uh, that was, uh, you know, we did several acceptances there. Um, On, uh, yeah, and then then I was on the 767 program, so I did the course at at Boeing and uh, with our initial group. Uh, I did the uh, simulator acceptance at, uh, at uh, in the UK, yep. and uh, back did the aircraft acceptance, the first one, and uh, subsequent 767s seven, and uh, said working with Nev on the with the 400s and uh, did. I think four of those are, and um, also some mini acceptances when we picked up aircraft for a short time there was a 767 where you got in from Lot in Poland and I, I went over there to, to observe the, the operation on the way back and, yep. and uh, we did a mini acceptance there, did a, a mini acceptance of a 767 in Guangzhou and um, so, yeah, but full acceptance was about 18. Okay. Yeah.
4: And I, I can't compete with that at all. Uh, coming late into the piece, I've done eight total. Okay. Yep. Seven, four, seven, four, seven, four hundredths is four of those, uh, or five, and the seven, six, sevens. But I never flew the seven, six, seven, as I said, you know, I accepted mm-hmm. them, but Uh, most of the acceptances I, I did were at, at Los Angeles, sorry not uh, Seattle, and uh, there's one, one at uh, Mobile, Alabama, uh, which was uh, the first of our GE-powered uh, ones. That, that aircraft initially came down the line for uh, Canadian Airlines and uh, before it ever got to the end of the line uh, they didn't want it. So it ended up um, being parked outside uh, partially built and then Varig took it over and so the whole spec was changed to a Varig spec so I don't know if you realise the significance of the numbers within the um, aircraft uh, type but this is, uh, this is a 747219 and New Zealand is a, is a number 19 company within the Boeing system so with the 37200s seven, seven would be a 219s and, and the and the 400s are 419, so that, that's so. The, the Canadian one was a 475 uh, spec, okay. and that that you can get the spec book out for 475, well, 475 aircraft within the Boeing system, and you know exactly what's in that aircraft. Right. So we, uh, yeah, there was it was supposed to be a um, and if I said 441, I'm guessing at that, but it's something around that number in barrack. And uh, when we got there, we found it wasn't exactly as uh, Varig said it was, and it wasn't exactly as Canadian thought that they'd had. had. Uh-huh. So it, it, it took a bit of time. But we had a lot of trouble with that aircraft uh, in Mobile. And uh, it was only, only apparent when you got airborne. We had a bleed, and one of the engines and wasn't working. And it took a long time to track it down. And it turned out somebody left a blank in the plug, in the, in the, in the line and it was sensing ground, ground pressure instead of atmospheric pressure. Uh, yeah, so, so, so sometimes it happens. Yeah, it does.
3: Right. <laughs> I just, uh, another one <coughs> which was a, a mini acceptance of if you like a bit more than that uh, was in Dothan, Alabama with uh, ZKSUJ which, had, which was owned by ILFC but had been built for Philippine Airlines and they went uh, bankrupt at one stage and so the air- aircraft had been built and accepted and uh, but ILFC uh, owned it and with nowhere for it to go so it, it was picked up by Air New Zealand but uh, prior to that uh, was sitting on the ground at at uh, Everett and uh, Boeing wanted ILFC to get it out of there and so they took it to Mobile, Alabama where there was a, a kind of a, a maintenance unit that uh, had been sitting there for some time and it was the first time they'd had a 747 in there for a long time and they, they were going to um, do a, a repaint, and, uh, but the hangar wouldn't, it wasn't big enough to house the complete aeroplane, the tail was sticking out of the hangar and a hurricane went through and uh, damaged stuff and uh, say so the, the paint job was, was affected and uh, that was corrected. But um, yes, we, uh, we did a full ground acceptance and, and a operational flight check, brought it back. Getting back to the first 400 deliveries, ZKNBS, um, I was working with Nev on that and because Nev brought it back to Auckland. And uh I was uh, I was with them, and our families came out to meet us when we got back. Uh, my uh, son was twelve years old and uh, subsequently NBS uh, was sent to um, Roswell new mexico to be uh sold in parts at that time the aircraft was worth more in parts than it was as, as a complete uh, entity and uh, by that time my son had uh, he he was a become a pilot he was employed by air new zealand and they start as second officer and it, on the it, that time he was on the 747-400 and was uh, on the crew that uh, took the aeroplane to Roswell so I was uh, I was on the first flight and delivery and he took it to the Knackers yard. Wow.
4: That's amazing. And Pete and I sat at the end of the runway and watched it yes. go. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. It was sad, 20 years.
3: Nineteen to twenty years has been the, typically the life of, of, uh, that the New Zealand would maintain and keep them yep. and uh, checking my logbook was just uh, coincidental but um, I operated the first aircraft as I said when we went over to Moses Lake and, uh, and I did the, the last uh, operation in New Zealand ownership be, before the last aircraft went to Virgin Atlantic. And it was nineteen years to the day. Right. <laughs>
2: okay. So. <laughs> uh, so when the seven four seven four hundred came in, what happened to the seven four seven two hundreds? What happened to them?
3: Uh, well, they were still here for a little while, but we knew uh, we knew for a long time, obviously, that the seven four seven two hundred would go. That uh, the aircraft didn't have flight engine. New aircraft didn't have flight engineers on them and that the flight engineers, as a part of the operating crew in in New Zealand, that time would finish. We didn't know when, but we knew it would happen. So we had industrial arrangements in place with the the union. We had a very good relationship with the Flight Engineers Association, and I was in a unique position, if you like, in that Besides being responsible to manage the flight operations for the flight engineers, I was responsible to the the, uh, the uh, training uh, manager for standards. I was responsible to the director of flight operations of, of uh, civil aviation for uh, standards and and licensing and. Licensing approvals and uh, and recommendation <coughs> and uh, but I was also the the uh, in conjunction with the flight operations uh, HR brand, uh, people um, responsible for relations with with the union with negotiations and so on with the union. And so, in 1985, we, uh, we had agreement with the union that flight engineers employed prior to that time, if in the event of, of uh, loss of the flight engineer role, they could continue working on the ground up until their... 55th birthday because at that time retirement age was 55 Yep. and uh, but we would also assist in in any other uh, jobs that they could possibly do but any new flight engineer employed from that time uh, it was quite clear that we would have no responsibility for Um, and so during any uh, when we were interviewing for flight engineers subsequently uh, we made that quite clear the association were there and they made it quite clear to them as well Um, when uh, we Well in um, about, must have been 1998, Virgin Atlantic came down because we were going to drop one aircraft out of the fleet. So they came down to look at it and they said they'd take them all. And uh, I was advised of this at 4.30. and. in the afternoon and uh, it was a huge shock but uh, we, we got the association in the next morning and uh, told them and so as I said we had all the procedures and processes in place and um, well prior to that too uh, some of them uh, who were pilot qualified were offered pilot positions Right. Uh, They had to put quite an investment into themselves. They had to have a commercial license and a multi-engine instrument rating. They had to uh, preferably have at least 500 hours. Um, But because they'd been sitting in this seat, you know, they were totally familiar with the cockpit and the procedures and what happened. And uh, so 13 uh, went we actually had to d- delay them for a bit, but um, maintained their seniority position. Uh, in total, 19 became pilots. Okay. And uh, uh, it was, yeah, uh, you know, I was very proud of what, what they had achieved. And uh, those that are still there, pretty well, all of them are 787 captains okay. now. Uh, a number of retired, of course, but um, so that worked well um, we, uh, I think about ten of the pre-85s uh, took jobs on the ground and, uh, and advanced uh, from there and uh, several of them in management positions. Um, others uh, was interesting. We we did uh, prior to that time have a an aircraft on lease to Air Pacific, uh, now Fiji Airways. Uh, on and during that time, we had our flight engineers operating with their pilots. It was on our it was on the New Zealand Air operating certificate. Their pilots came down and and did the course, and but uh, we. Uh, Fred Douglas, who was manager of flight operations at the time, he and I uh, made this, uh, had an agreement with Air Pacific that we could use our flight engineers because they didn't have them, of course. And uh, our rostering people uh, did all the rosterings so that, um, and it was a, we could, for instance, go from Auckland to uh, Narita on, in, on Air New Zealand aircraft, go Narita and Andy on, on Air Pacific and then down to here on Air Pacific or Air New Zealand and the same up to Los Angeles okay. and that worked extremely well during during that time so we had a, a close relationship with Air Pacific and subsequently they got another Qantas aeroplane back in. Uh, we. Uh, Had a number of our flight engineers who uh, were either retiring or, and we had we had uh, 12 who had retired would come back on contract. So they were terminated first, but we arranged or helped quite a number of those to go to Air Pacific. So the whole program, while you know redundancy isn't a a uh, thing to deal with. For me it was satisfying from a management perspective and that it all worked well. Uh, right at the end, we, uh, somebody suggested that we should take all flight engineers past and present and their spouses on a, on a flight. And uh, so, we thought, how are we going to do that? But anyway, we it was put to uh, through Ron Tannock to Jim McRae, and he agreed. So uh, we were able to get pretty well every flight engineer who was s- still living, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the and the ones currently, and uh, took their them and their spouse on a flight uh, <coughs> for a little over an hour okay. and uh, we have uh, f- and then we took them to dinner f- um, in a facility near the airport we uh, that's where we actually picked them up from and bussed them down and uh, so yeah that was and then we we uh, Traditionally, when somebody retires, they're given a photograph that a lot of people have signed, and so we were able to hand out the photographs. And yes, it was a, I mean, you'd say it was a good, good event, Nev.
4: It was a great event. It was. You know, I, I felt somewhat conflicted, if you want to use that word, having decided in 1960 that the the days of the flight engineer was coming to an end. And, uh, and going down the pilot route uh, to be the guy who caused it all by b- bringing in the 400 aircraft was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as I said, it was conflicting. I, I still feel that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The third pair of eyes in the cockpit is a valuable thing, and the flight engineers were good. You know, that was a great thing. You felt lost for a while as a two-person cockpit in a great big airplane. Well, any airplane, but uh, you know, you soon got over that. Of course, we had the seven six sevens, you know, that mm. time, but they weren't flight engineer uh, aircraft, anyway. Yes. yes. So, yeah, it was an in- interesting, um, from the, the history perspective, to, to be there on that flight. It was a le- great flight, really And
3: if I can say that, <coughs> from my time in management, um, things were it was the Well, Boeing, and were recommending that um, the flight engineer become more involved in monitoring and so on, and they called it a total crew concept and we uh, Don Olyph and myself uh, got
0: very interested
3: in that early on and uh, we introduced uh, this program and Uh, It it worked well, but um, the flighting air would be monitoring the flight path. We went through the redundancy process that I had discussed before, so I was in the unfortunate position of having to make 64 people redundant, but as I said we had the procedures and everything in place and it, it worked and then make myself redundant uh, I I was around for about a year after the the last airline operations because of the time that we were taking to uh, get the aircraft handed over to Virgin Atlantic yep. and um, as I said we are taking them up to China for Section forty one modifications. That was a forty five thousand man hour job. They were turning them around in thirty-five days. And so we would take them up there, come back, then go back up there, do the acceptance flying, do the acceptance and and then Virgin Atlantic engaged engaged New Zealand Engineering to do all the modifications that they want wanted they put in uh, new galleys, new toilets, uh, overhead, big overhead bins. Uh, there was uh, quite a lot of new equipment in the cockpit. Nev had discussed SATCOM previously. We had been trying to justify that for many years on on this aircraft. Virgin Atlantic put it in. There was digital fuel quantity, quantity indicating system which was an advancement with you know, far more accurate, greater accuracy. Um, they uh, modified the navigation system, and quite a number of others. And so, we then did the operational flight checks subsequent to that. Virgin Atlantic came down and did the acceptance flight. We did the, we operated the aircraft. They observed, and uh, then they took them away. So after the last one. Had gone. I was finished. I had to finish off some uh, some work that we uh, were engaged with, with engineering, and uh, we were also, and we we probably both of us went through more restructuring than the human frame can can <laughs> take. But I was, was involved in another restructure in our area of uh, airline of uh, flight operations and so I was brought back in on uh, uh, contract to uh, for a bit while that was reorganized and uh, then I was asked to do a consultancy job at Royal Tongan Airlines at the time looking at they were having a a review done by a, a major accounting firm of the commercial operations, and they recommended that uh, that a review be done of the technical operations and flight operations. So I was engaged to do that. it was an interesting process. Yeah. And uh, so then I I thought I'd finished with aviation, but. Uh, about 18 months later, I was asked to go back into flight operations as a technical writer. So, uh, doing the the flight crew operating manuals. Yep. So I did that for another 10 years. So oh, right. uh, 51 years in total.
4: Right. <laughs> yeah, I was I was the first one, first pilot in the country to get through 40 years total employment. And okay. That's only because the apprenticeship start, you know, yes. and you got to. We all had to retire at 55 when yeah. I was coming up to retirement, and then the Employment Contract Act came in when I was getting up there, uh, and so I didn't retire till I was 58. Okay, gotcha. Couldn't be made to retire on account of age now. Yeah, so, yeah I reached my use by
3: date. Yeah, yes, and then I. <coughs> If I had uh, been there much longer, I think I would have been stuffed and mounted and put in (laughs) motets.
4: When when I started flying, um, as a flight engineer in 1960, they'd just gone out of the era where you spoke to the captain through the first officer. Oh really? (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, that thats the old wartime uh, and British system. Uh, Luckily, we. I didn't never crude on well, that system. Yeah. Uh, you certainly knew who, who was in charge, and, and you still do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's where's where the buck stops. But uh, the end, you know, the New Zealand system that, that Pete and Don uh, Don or Pete was talking about was certainly a good one in the cockpit. The total cockpit crew. Uh, and there's, there's no good having a spare, thingy sitting at the back, looking as a flying meter reader. You, know, yeah. you, you want them up there with you. Yes. Eyes forward.
2: So, um, I know that you were flying some of the biggest aircraft around New Zealand at the time, but at the same time you were um, you were also building and flying the smallest twin engine aircraft in the world, the Creekery. Can you tell me about that?
4: Yeah, well, it was a great aircraft and it's a, an aircraft um, my friends kindly, unkindly say that you build to take your friends flying in because it's only a single <laughs> seater. <so. laughs> but it was a all metal um Plans built aircraft. Uh, Having done my apprenticeship um, in the electrical section, the section I liked most, and we had to do six months in each discipline within the company during apprenticeship, uh, was metal work. And working and building a a metal aircraft from plans, and then flying it, was a a great thing. I think, and uh, it embodied um, a lot of uh, two-part epoxy systems. Very rivets were used there. Just a Hold that together, basically. Um, it was plus nine, minus four G aircraft, very aerobatic. You could fly all day upside down. It's probably the most fun flying I've ever had. Did you actually do aerobatics it? Yeah, I did. did I you? did. Yeah. Um, uh, but I never got a low-level aerobatic rating, uh, which I came to aerobatics uh, in my late 60s. I did my aerobatic rating then yeah. uh, to do the test flying in the creek. and I regret ever since that I never took it out as a younger guy. You know, I loved it. And, uh, but you know, you, when you and later in life, you, you regret some things and you can never go back to them. Yeah, and I, I regret that. But the, the Creek Cree was a wonderful uh, little aeroplane. It really was. You could do anything with it. it. Being two-stroke, you could fly it on its side, upside down. It didn't care. You know, just.
2: Uh, what, what were the engines on your one? Uh,
4: they were uh, two uh, uh, Jpx uh, engines, Jpx, uh, fifteen horsepower each. Um, so there's a the little thing cruised at 90 knots on 30 horsepower, which is a pretty clean little airplane. It's a slippery little thing, Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, the discipline of flying with the bigger aircraft applied with that. You know, you played great attention to what was going on. It was a difficult airplane to stall. Um, in fact, you'd quite often had to look at the um, VSI to decide which was it was near the stall. Um, and it was at quite a high angle and uh, had full full aileron control because it had flaperons, so full aileron control. And, and, uh, I remember, one day I stalled it at, at um, six thousand feet and held it. Well, it wasn't it wasn't stalled. You couldn't feel anything. Just the VSI was pointing down at fifteen hundred feet a minute and I took it down to about four thousand feet. Full aileron control, full rudder control, and uh, you know, just uh, dangerous in that respect. Get close to the ground at the slow speed and, yeah. and it would hurt you. Maintained uh, 70 knots on approach, and, but yeah, wonderful little airplane. Uh, and
2: where is it now? You saw It's down there. at Rangiora. All
4: oh, right. Yeah, the yeah. Young man down there. Uh, uh, I don't know if he's flown it recently. I don't know. That I haven't caught up with him lately. Yeah. So. I know there's another one in on New Zealand too. Yeah, that no. was a fellow called uh, Wayne Butt. Yes, an ear nose and throat surgeon down in uh, New Plymouth and. Uh, Wayne and I have flown together with aircraft and got oh, yes. got air shots of, uh, oh, of both of them. Uh, he he had a different engine. He had a, a two-cylinder two-stroke, uh, and, and that had seemed to have more vibration than the single-cylinder one that I had. Okay. The engine mount was quite unique on the thing and balanced out the vibrations. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I actually saw one on YouTube that had jet
4: engines, little jets. Yeah, they had um, those little jets. Uh, I was always wanted to put one on uh, but the, the endurance was only 20 minutes oh, right. and uh, and the same with electrics I wanted to put electric engines on and the battery life uh, if you know when I sold it 20 years ago um, it wasn't enough to, to make any you know, you know, the only difference really is that you're landing at the same weight you took off you know yeah yeah significant, yeah. but it just wasn't enough t- in duration. With this thing, you know, you'd uh, well, like I could probably take oh, flew it to New Plymouth. Yeah, you know, you'd take it to New Plymouth. No, no trouble. Okay,
2: from yep, from Auckland. Mm. Yeah, mm. So.
4: yeah. It's it was a, it was a great, great um, thing, and th- that's what I did uh, basically after I retired. Although I started it in '86, and we talked about the Queen going into uh, London. I started it on significantly on the 11th hour of the 11th day at 11am le- in 1986 and that wasn't anything that i wanted to do it was just that i turned the radio on and it was armistice day and that's when i first cut metal and uh, that was the, in the first in the build log was armistice day so it always became a, uh, a point i passed each year and yeah. recognized it
2: yeah awesome well, gentlemen, thank you very much. I've learned a heck of a lot about our airline and, and uh, I think you two have had really significant careers within the airline over the years and uh, um, done some quite important things with it. So it's been a pleasure to sit here with you guys and and hear your stories. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Dave. Thank, thank you, That's Dave. It's been great. Yes.
2: Yeah, that was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.